Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Last time on The Crisis. Terry Collingsworth, an American lawyer, is leading a case against the president of an American coal company's operations in Colombia. The company is called Drummond, and the case accuses Drummond of aiding and abetting the murders of three men who led its workers' union, Victor Orcasita, Valmore Locarno, and Gustavo Soler. Drummond reitera, como lo expresó oportunamente cuando se asesinó a los sindicalistas, que lamenta este suceso. Pero se encontró también con un, con un monstruo que... Que, que grande. Everyone you know involved has to understand that we're taking on some very dangerous and powerful forces here. Yaneth is the widow of Valmora Locarno, the former union president. In the weeks after his murder, she's fled the country because of death threats. There's this picture that Yaneth has kept of her husband Valmore. It's from a few months before he was killed. She and Valmore had gone to visit his dad on his birthday. The whole family was gathered. When Valmore went to wish his dad a happy birthday, he picked him up in his arms like he was a little kid. It made the whole family laugh, and that's what's in the picture. It's one of those moments that Yaneth carries with her. After receiving the phone calls threatening to harm her family, Yaneth fled Colombia. First, she and her two kids go to El Salvador. But they have no idea where they're ultimately going to end up. Or if they'll ever be able to return to Colombia. Yaneth is scared that the people who were looking for her in Colombia could come looking for her in El Salvador too. Then, one day, she receives a message. An American lawyer called Terry Collingsworth is bringing a case against Drummond for aiding in the murders of Victor, Valmore, and Gustavo. He and the lawyers he's working with are suing Drummond in Alabama. At this point, Yanez has barely had time to process the death of her husband, before being forced to abandon their home and the life they built together. But, she thinks, 
at least if this trial is in the United States, there'll be justice. I'm Agnes Walton, and this is The Crisis. Chapter 4, The Fish Dies by Opening Its Mouth. It takes six years, but Terry Collingsworth's case against Drummond finally goes to trial. In the summer of 2007 in Birmingham, Alabama, where Drummond's headquarters are. In Alabama, a civil trial begins today accusing the Alabama-based coal company Drummond of ordering the killing of three Colombian union leaders. By this time, Yaneth has requested and received asylum in Canada. She's been talking with Terry and his co-counsel on the phone for years. But the first time she actually meets him in person is during the trial. She sees him sitting on one side of the room with the plaintiffs, union members, friends of Valmore. And she sees on the other side the defendants. Yaneth looks across the room and realizes that what many of the people testifying have in common is not just that they were part of the union, but that in the years after her husband's murder, they also fled Colombia, just like her family. It's a jury trial, so a panel of jurors from Alabama has to decide if a local coal company participated in war crimes 1,800 miles away in Colombia and Terry has to prove that Drummond paid the paramilitaries during the Civil War and as a result aided and abetted in killing members of the Union. The trial goes on for about two weeks. There are thousands of pages of written transcript, but no recordings. So Ramon and other producers on our team are going to read some excerpts. There are two big questions at the heart of the trial. The first one is, what was the relationship like between the union and management at Drummond? To try to answer that question, Terry's side calls a witness, a guy called George Pierce. He's the American crew supervisor that we mentioned in the last episode, the guy who read articles about the lawsuit. He emailed Terry and the other lawyers, saying he thought he could speak to the relationship between Drummond and the union. So, guys, um, can you go to page 80 of the transcript? So... Do you want me to ask the questions? Yeah, and um, I think the rest of us will just read the testimonies. Pierce starts off talking about security at the mine, how the employees were searched by the company before and after work. Who were you talking about that was being searched? The hourly people. The hourly people. Were they from Colombia or the USA? They were Colombians. Were the supervisors searched? The American supervisors? No. Pierce worked for Drummond for just two years, from 1998 to 2000. And he says in that time, 
The railroad that took coal from the mine to the port was bombed several times. So Drummond increased security at the mine. Do you know what they were searching for? Contraband, pilferage, items that were pilfered. They thought ANFO was being... What is ANFO? Ammonium nitrate was being taken out of the thermostat. ANFO, which is ammonium nitrate fuel oil, it's an industrial explosive and it's used in coal mining. According to Pierce, Drummond thought the guerrillas were bombing the railway, and they suspected that the Union might be sneaking explosives out, like ANFO, to use in the bombings, and that this was the reason for the increased searches. Mr. Pierce, based on what you saw or what you heard while you worked at Drummond from September of 98 through April 2000, do you have an opinion about the attitude of the Drummond line supervisors regarding unions? Yes, I do. What is that opinion? It's a negative opinion as to their thoughts of the union. What was that again? It's a negative opinion as to hostile, negative. Pierce says Drummond's management believed that the union and the guerrillas were one and the same. At this point, the judge jumps in to clarify that this is hearsay, not fact, saying, Ladies and gentlemen, the testimony that Mr. Pierce is about to offer regarding what other people have told him is being offered not for the truth of what was said, but to show Mr. Pierce's state of mind. Pierce goes on to say that multiple Drummond supervisors thought the union was working with the guerrillas. He lists off at least five Drummond employees who told him as much, including Valmore's boss, John Ruddick. Now, Mr. Pierce, will you tell the jury what Mr. Ruddick said about the union? John Ruddick said that the union and the guerrillas were pretty much one and the same, and also that they were responsible for the sabotage of the rail lines. Terry's co-counsel asks if Valmori's boss said anything else. Here, the judge interjects again, saying that these allegations are Pierce's opinions, not facts. Will you tell the jury, please, what Mr. Ruddick said specifically about Mr. Locarno? He made the comment that somebody should take him out and shoot him, knock him in the head. And he made this comment on one occasion or more than one occasion? Several occasions. Pierce also says that near the end of 1998, sometime before Christmas, he ends up on the same plane as the president of Drummond in Colombia, Augusto Jimenez. And at some point in the trip, they cross paths. And as I went by him, I asked him how things were going with the union because that's when they were having negotiations. And he made the comment back that a fish that swims with his mouth open soon drowns. Did you ask him what he meant by that comment? No, I didn't. Why not? Because I didn't see a need to. What do you mean by that? Pretty much, I knew what he really meant. Was he laughing or joking when he made this comment? No, he was serious. On cross-examination, the lawyers for Drummond point out that Pierce didn't mention the incident when they initially deposed him. And then later, when Drummond brings Ruddick to testify, Ruddick says, in his opinion, Pierce had a strained relationship with the company, and with him in particular. Ruddick was responsible for firing Pierce for poor workplace performance. But that phrase Pierce mentions, the fish dies by opening its mouth, in Spanish, el pez muere por la boca, comes up again during the trial in three people's testimonies. A couple of union members testify that Drummond's president in Colombia, Augusto Jimenez, said this to them in a meeting after the murders of Victor and Valmore. They say that this is a well-known phrase in Colombia. It can be understood as a threat, 
Like, keep your mouth shut or else. And that's how they took it. One of the lawyers on Terry's team asks Augusto Jimenez, did he actually say the fish dies by opening its mouth? So at this meeting that followed the murders of the president and vice president of the union, they accuse you of saying in response to their death, a fish dies by opening its mouth. Do you acknowledge saying that to them in that March 2001 meeting? I do say. I do not remember me saying that specific statement. But I do remember, very precisely, I do remember me telling the union guys that the union members, at that given moment, that they should be careful of what they say. That it was not only enough to say that be aware of the conflict, but behave as if we are not part of the conflict. I call for prudence. Of course, Drummond's lawyers push back. First, they point out the phrase could mean anything, and it could be said and interpreted in lots of different ways. Then they point out that many of the union members still work for Drummond all these years later. Some union members, they say, have even asked Augusto Jimenez for financial help. Why would these people come to the company asking for money or favors, Drummond asks, if they believed the company was involved with their friend's death? How scared could they possibly be? More after the break. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This brings us to the second big question at the trial. Did Drummond have a relationship with the paramilitaries? Drummond is adamant they had no contact with paramilitaries, those vigilante militias that had sprung up all over the country. In court, Terry's side plays a video deposition from a colonel in the Colombian military called Edwin Guzman. The Colombian military had a base near Drummond's mine. So did you receive any training or taught anything about unions in the military? Do you understand the question? Yes. Please respond. To us in the military training schools, we are taught that the guerrillas in subversion, they are a cancer that destroys the Colombian government, and that these labor unions were created by the subversions so as to have a sort of legal immunity so that we would be unable to do anything against them. In his testimony, Guzman says he saw paramilitaries driving around the mine site in pickup trucks that he alleges were owned by Drummond. One day, sometime in January 2001, about a month and a half before the murders, 
he's asked by his boss to accompany one of Drummond's American employees on an errand. You stated that the people next to the wooded area had identification? Yes. You could see from afar that there were several people. I was not able to see all of them, but the one that I was able to see, I did see that he did have identification. According to Guzman, the man he could see was wearing an armband that identified him as a member of the paramilitaries. Soon after Guzman leaves the army, he testifies that he joins the paramilitaries himself. And there's this guy that he swears he's seen before, one of the paramilitary members at that meeting. He's a hitman for the paramilitaries. On cross-examination, Drummond drills into Guzman's credibility. Drummond's lawyers focus on the fact that Guzman was a member of the paramilitaries for two years, that he trafficked weapons and cocaine, and that he worked for a man who killed 1,200 people. Guzman says he never killed anyone while he was with the paramilitaries, and he only worked with their finances. By the time of this trial, summer 2007, the Colombian government has already started looking into alleged links between the paramilitaries and the Colombian army. Years later, it will be proven in court that the military did have ties to the paramilitaries, and a commander in Cesar will be sentenced to 19 years in prison. But all of that happens later. There's one more witness who might know something about whatever relationship existed with the paramilitaries. Drummond's chief of security, Jim Adkins. What were your responsibilities as a security manager? Mainly to protect Americans, but I also had the responsibility for protecting Colombians alike, anybody who was an employee of Drummond. Adkins is the former CIA agent who worked for Drummond from 1995 to 2001. He testifies that he reported directly to Gary Drummond, the company's president. He says Drummond would fly down if there was ever a problem, and the two men often discussed security at the mine on those trips. Adkins says when he started, his job was mainly to protect anyone who was an employee of Drummond. What types of activities would you do to protect them? Well, I was trying to increase the defenses around the port and around the mine. Eventually, we had the responsibility for trying to protect the train, which was impossible. What were you protecting them from? Possible kidnap in the case of the Americans. And for the Colombians? Well, we were trying to protect them against kidnaps to the extent that we could. Adkins regularly wrote memos back to the Drummond executives in Alabama, briefing them in detail about the situation on the ground. And these memos become exhibits in the case. One of the first ones is from September 1995. Adkins writes that the government has passed new legislation that, in his opinion, will allow the military to create and organize private security groups in order to help combat the guerrillas. What he's referring to is a program known as Convivir. Adkins tells his boss that a military commander visited his office a week earlier and asked for money to help set up intelligence networks and arm these vigilante groups in the area around the mine. In the memo, Adkins also reminds his bosses that, by law, foreign companies cannot participate. And anyway, such a program will bring with it egregious human rights violations that preclude Drummond from participating. We are better advised to keep our heads down and keep producing coal. It is not our fight. 
but we are almost certain to be affected in some way by it. Aiken says he knew Valmore. He describes Valmore as a fiery guy, and he says at one point he heard a well-known speech Valmore gave on TV, where he denounced foreign corporations like Drummond. Mr. Locarno gave a speech on national television in which he condemned Drummond Corporation, condemned the army, condemned the Colombian government, condemned the paramilitaries, really took off on the paramilitaries, basically carried the FARC water on that occasion. And I heard, I heard the speech on national television, and I thought, oh no, Valmore. Was that a risky thing for him to do? It was a very risky thing for him to do. Why is that? Well, he incited everybody who might possibly have a connection to the paramilitaries, and especially the paramilitaries. I mean, it's just like spitting in their eye. It looked like he was doing the FARC's work for them. That's what it sounded like. What did he say about Drummond in that speech? Do you remember? Well, he basically, he tied Drummond to the government, and the government to the army, and the army to the paramilitaries, and... There was a chain and all of them kind of fit in together the way that he described it, as I recall. And this was sort of a long time ago, you know, this was six, seven years ago. Atkins says the guerrillas and the paramilitaries were constantly trying to extort Drummond and pressured them to pay bribes, to pay for security and to pay to be kept out of the conflict. Did the paramilitaries make extortion demands on Drummond while you were there? I understand that they did. Explain that for me. How do you know that? Well, they didn't contact me, so I can't give you any detail of it, but they were always trying to contact someone in the company at an appropriate level to place their demands. In the memos he writes to his bosses in 1995, Adkins describes the increase in paramilitary presence in the area and details their movements. The lawyers ask if Adkins ever met with anyone from the paramilitaries. Adkins says no. What involvement, if any, to your knowledge, did Drummond Company have in the murders of Valmore Locarno or Victor Hugo or Casita? None whatsoever. How about Soler? None whatsoever. Are you aware of any involvement by Drummond Company or Gary Drummond or Augusto Jimenez in those murders? No. Was there, during the five years you were in security with Drummond LTD, Did any of management discuss in your presence a plan to commit violence against union leaders? None. Never. When Yaneth Valmore's widow is finally called to testify, she's first questioned by Terry's team. She talks about Valmore. She says he worked at other mines before, but he'd never been part of a union before Drummond. He always had a newspaper in his hand. He was bookish and no bullshit and got recruited to be president. Valmore had been searched a bunch and he'd spoken out about it to management. Once he was even suspended for 60 days. In 2000, before her husband's death, she says, they received threats. Can you tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury what he told you? He told me that somebody had called and told him that he was going to send a wreath with the decoration. Like you send when somebody dies. Can you describe his demeanor? He looked really pale and scared at that time. Did he 
did his personality or sleep habits change after that call? Yes, he started to suffer from insomnia. He cannot sleep very well at night. After her husband was killed, Yanath submitted a report to the Attorney General. Did you, in this report, give the names of people that you believe were responsible for your husband's death? Yes, I did. She gives the name of Jaime Blanco, the man who ran food services at the mine, and his childhood friend who also works for Drummond. We aren't able to include the friend's name because he was never actually charged with anything. After she turns in the report, she says, that's when the threat started, and she fled. On cross-examination, Drummond's lawyer questions Yaneth about that report. You said that in that report, you named two people who you thought were responsible or might have been involved in your husband's death. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Ma'am, you don't know who killed your husband, do you? No. And you're not aware of, you're not personally aware of any connection between Drummond and paramilitaries, is that right? No, I don't know. I'm not personally aware of that. The lawyers then ask Yaneth about every financial benefit she's receiving from Drummond. Her husband's life insurance, his pension. They ask about how Drummond paid for her son's tuition and her health insurance. And they mention the $300 a month she still gets from the company's widow's fund. Drummond paid you several benefits after Mr. Locarno died, right? Yes. And that money was to help you, right? Yes. And it was to help your children as well? Yes. Now, do you understand that this money was given to you voluntarily by Drummond? I understand that there was a program. Right. And that program was offered by Drummond, right? Yes, by Drummond. That's right. In their closing statements, Drummond's lawyer points to the U.S. Department of State's report about violence in Colombia in 2000. There was, he says, a killing every 20 minutes, and 1,500 union members were murdered in 10 years. And Drummond was indeed one of the largest mining companies in the country, with thousands of employees in a very large union. It's also true that three union men were murdered. But, the lawyer for Drummond explains, Drummond had a good relationship with their union, and the company had nothing to do with the murders. Realmente, yo esperé hasta el final allá en Estados Unidos hasta que. Yaneth waits while the jury deliberates. She's at the courthouse when the verdict comes down. The jury decides that Drummond is not liable for the deaths of Victor, Valmore and Gustavo Soler. Pues fue muy doloroso. Doloroso saber que it was really hard to hear that the verdict hadn't turned out as she hoped. Afterwards, she sees Terry at the airport. The exchange they have is brief. 
Y pues ahí me abrazó, me dijo que no, todo estaba perdido. He gave her a hug. Todavía está, había esperanza. Told her that not everything was lost, that there was still hope. Y pues ahí nos despedimos y... And then they said goodbye. Esa fue el final de, de ese proceso. This was the end of that case, but it was by no means the end of litigation. Two years later, Terry sues Drummond again, this time on behalf of the children of the union leaders. The court rejects it, saying this case is too similar to the last one. Other cases follow. Over the years and these multiple trials, new accusations have come out about Drummond and particularly about their security chief, the ex-CIA agent Jim Adkins. Lunch TV? No comments. No. Uh, we're not. We're not television. Actually, we're uh, more of a radio project. Hello, Mr. Atkins, are you there? That's after the break. The first time we try to call Jim Adkins, it's around the holidays. Lunch TV? No comments. No. Uh, we're, not, we're not television, actually. We're uh, more of a radio project. Hello? And then the phone line just goes silent. Mr. Atkins? In the years since the trial, some sworn confessions have surfaced that accuse Adkins of being involved in planning the murders. And we kept on hearing about these accusations in our reporting, so it all seemed important to actually interview him, if at all possible. And so we call him again about a month later. Hello, um, yes. Mr. Atkins? Yes, speaking. Hi, how are you? Uh, my name is Ramon Campos, and I'm with Vice. How are how are you doing? Is uh, do you have a second to talk? No, I, listen, I, I I don't trust any anybody that wants to. The information that, that's come out of, uh, of of this trial is so one-sided and so false and and uh, obviously slanted uh, toward uh, what what that lawyer has to say that. But he stays on the phone for more than an hour. He tells us that after he resigned from the CIA, he started working for different companies, and eventually Drummond got in touch with him. Atkins is from West Virginia, and according to him, he got along well with the Alabama Drummonds, partly because, as he puts it, they all speak redneck. The audio is a little rough, so I'm going to paraphrase most of what he says. Well, you know, they kept their word. I, I, I thought they, they were totally honest with the workers, and, and uh, they were honest with me. Atkins says he felt that Drummond was honest with him and the workers, that they didn't try to cheat people. I mean, they, they were very careful about every dime that they spent. If, if, if there was a dime spent, there was a receipt somewhere. Atkins maintains that the guerrillas and the paramilitaries were always trying to get money from Drummond, to extort them and shake them down, but that Gary Drummond's policy was firm. There's just absolutely just no 
contact with the paramilitaries. And Adkins says he knew both Victor and Valmore. I knew both of them. When they had some complaint about uh, the quality of the food that they were getting, you know, for... They would come to him with complaints about the quality of food, for example, and he would try to help them out. But, Adkins says, his main role became protecting the railway. The protection of that train. Mm-hmm. After that, that's, all I, that's all I did, you know. I mean, to make sure that Drummond's coal shipments could get to its port safely. According to Adkins, the railway was bombed dozens of times while he was working there, but he could never figure out how to stop it. He says he met often with Gary Drummond, and they got along well. And as, as far as you remember, how, how was Mr. Drummond like? You know, he was a very, uh, he was a stern somebody, but, but he, he, he took care of his workers. You know? He says Gary Drummond was stern, but he took care of his workers, and they in turn thought he walked on water. I mean, he had a lot of faithful people there. I mean, they, they thought he walked on water. But then, at one point, Gary Drummond said he wanted to buy an old tank and put it by the rail line to make it look like the military was stationed there and scare away whoever was doing the bombing. Well, I said, you, you, you can't do that. They, they, uh, the first thing you'll do is go in there and blow that thing up and, and blow up the people in it. And Atkins was like, no, please don't do that. The first thing that will happen is someone will go in and blow up the tank and anyone in it. But Gary Drummond hangs on to the idea and Atkins keeps pushing back. Oh, Gary, you're not listening to me. <laughs> he, he kind of lost it there, you know, let me know that he was listening for, for some kind of a solution to, to the problem that we had, and I didn't have a solution for it. Drummond kind of loses it. Atkins says his boss just really wanted a solution, and he didn't have one. So according to Atkins, that's when he left. But it took a while to find a replacement, which is why Adkins says he was still working for Drummond right up until a few days after the murders. Do you think the bombings of the trains uh, were related um, to some extent to the conflict between the union and the company? Yes, sir. How's that? Yes, sir. Well, you know... I, I, there's no, no definite proof of it. Aiken says there's no proof he can share about the alleged connection between the union and the guerrillas. But he believes that when the negotiations didn't go the way the union wanted, suddenly a train would blow up. So what you're saying is the the union's demand, like when when they were when the company didn't meet the demands, they they would sort of get the rebels to put pressure on the company by blowing up the, the train line? Well, I don't have any evidence I can present to you. Again, Aiken says he doesn't have proof he can share with us. At the end of our interview, we ask Adkins if the company didn't order the killings of the union leaders, who did? Why Why do you think these guys got killed if, uh, if it wasn't like in the interest of the company back then? Listen, um... They they were they were after that uh, that Jaime Blanco 
They were after his contract. Jaime Blanco, who was contracted to provide food services at the mine. He was the guy who allegedly told Victor that, quote, he'd rather kill a few union members than have his contract taken away. And he was also the person that Yaneth named in the report she filed after her husband's death. The thing about Columbia, you, you don't have to kill anybody who's, who's screwing with you. Atkins says that in Colombia, you don't have to kill anyone yourself. If they mess with enough people, eventually someone will do it for you. Well, those union people were responsible for the Jaime Blanco losing a very lucrative contract. And uh, Blanco was a pretty complicated guy. He, he got a lot of money from Drummond. Jaime had a lot to lose, Atkins says. We later found out that over the five years that Jaime ran the food services at the mine, Drummond paid him more than $6 million. Okay, well, well um, Mr. Atkins, this, uh, this has been really interesting to to hear you talk about all this. Um, and uh, I'm really glad we, we could connect. Well... I'll probably regret it, but, um, but uh, I regret every, every aspect of the damn thing you were Atkins really opened up, even though he said he didn't want to talk, and his story hasn't changed since the original testimony. But new testimonies and investigations have surfaced, and they might reveal more about the murders of the union leaders. And in the intervening years, Drummond was accused of crimes way closer to home in Alabama. I mean, I, I did what I said I did. I mean, I mean, it ain't like I, I didn't do it, you know. It's like I said, I sold out. I sold out my people. And with the way I sold out is that uh, I took money to do something. I should have done it for nothing. I should have done it as a politician. But once okay. I took money, that was it. That's next. Crisis is a production of Vice News. It's hosted by me, Sarah Quevedo, Ramon Campos, and Agnes Walton. It's produced by me and Ashley Cleek, who is our senior producer. Reporting by Ramon Campos, Agnes Walton, me, and Ashley Cleek. Adriana Tapia is also our producer. Adriana Rodriguez is our associate producer. Special thanks to Janice Yamoka, Diego Salazar, Adriana Tapia, Ben Cruzcaya, Jesse Alejandro Catro, and Miguel Fernandez, who helped with reading the court transcripts. And thanks to Jesse Alejandro Catro for additional production support. 
Sound design by Ben Kruskaya. Original scoring also by Ben Kruskaya, with additional music from Dominica Records in Bogota, Colombia. Translation and editorial consulting by Diego Salazar. Annie Aviles is our executive producer. Kate Osborne is the VP of Vice Audio. Janet Lee is our senior production manager. Production coordination from Stephanie Brown. Special thanks to Maximo Anderson and Jeff Peer for fact-checking. <laughs>